Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded Wednesday, November 5th. 2008. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM. Today we will discuss an editorial published in the September 2008 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, Eight Tracks, Betamax, Is the Endotracheal Tube Next to Go? Joining us today is the editorial author, James D. Fortenberry, MD, FCCM a pediatric intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Eggleston in Georgia, where he is also the medical director of the system's clinical research. Dr. Fortenberry also is chief division of critical care medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. The editorial was in response to an article published in the same issue by Leticia J. Yanez et al., a prospective randomized controlled trial of non-invasive ventilation in pediatric acute respiratory insufficiency. The reference for the editorial is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2008, Volume 9, Number 5, page 536. Good afternoon, Dr. Fortenberry. Thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Would you please start by giving us an overview of the study done by Dr. Yanez and colleagues? What did they do? What were their major findings? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, this was uh, this study is a, a very interesting uh, randomized trial. It was actually, to my knowledge, the first published uh, randomized controlled trial of non-invasive ventilation for pediatric acute respiratory failure patients. So I, I think it adds uh, significantly to to the literature certainly in the area of non-invasive ventilation. It was a, as I mentioned, a randomized trial. It was performed by uh, Dr. Yanez and her colleagues at um, randomization was taking place at two hospitals, uh, one in uh, Santiago, uh, Chile, and uh, one in Los Andes, Argentina. Um, there was a central randomization process to, uh, to test uh, the hypothesis that uh, the use uh, or the addition of non-invasive ventilation uh, to standard management would uh, decrease um, the need for intubation in children with uh, respiratory insufficiency. They, uh, they randomized patients to receive either standard care, which was defined in, in, the, uh, uh, in the, the paper, or to have the addition of non-invasive ventilation uh, using um, bilevel um, inspiratory uh, and expiratory positive airway pressure ventilation. Um, the median uh, age of these uh, these children was approximately 17 months, and uh, they had a variety of respiratory diseases. But the uh, approximately half of the patients in each group had uh, RSV, 
uh, pneumonia. Uh, they were able to randomize 25 patients to each, uh, each group, and uh, they monitored these patients for uh, their vital signs, their need for, their need for intubation. Their results were, um, were significant. They found uh, that in children receiving uh, the addition of non-invasive uh, ventilation to their care, there was a significant decrease uh, both in respiratory rate and heart rate uh, by six hours in, in the children with receiving BiPAP. Uh, additionally, their uh, PaO2 to FiO2 ratio was significantly decreased within the first hour compared to the children that received standard therapy alone. Uh, of more uh, significance was the, uh, was the fact that children receiving BiPAP were less, uh, less likely to require intubation. Um, 60% of children receiving standard therapy in the uh, study required intubation versus only 28% of the patients uh, receiving BiPAP as part of therapy, and this was statistically significant. They, uh, they also uh, they did not find a difference in overall, um, overall days in the ICU or days in the hospital, but the intubation days were significantly different. Um, what did you think were the limitations of the study? Well, I think there were, there were several. One of the, I guess one of the most obvious ones here was uh, that the, the study was not blinded. As, as you can imagine, it's difficult with many um, uh, equipment-type studies to, to blind for the, the use of a, a mask uh, in a child, uh, and so there, there wasn't blinding. However, they, uh, the authors did have a fairly standard set of criteria for intubation, which was an attempt to, to decrease uh, the um, decrease the variability or the uh, the selection bias in intubating patients. However, there, there's still uh, that would still leave room for physician discretion uh, in that. Um, the uh, so I would say that's the, the the primary limitation. There were also um, uh, this was somewhat of a heterogeneous group. There were a variety of processes, although. Uh, there were a significant proportion of the patients in each group that had RSV pneumonia. So in some ways, this was almost a comparison of BiPAP for RSV pneumonia patients. However, there was enough variability that, that I think it's, um, it could be generalizable um, to the general disease process of respiratory insufficiency in, in children. Why is non-invasive ventilation potentially better than conventional intubation and mechanical ventilation for children? Well, I think I think certainly if you are if you're able to to utilize uh, non-invasive ventilation, there are some there there could be advantages. Um, uh, the greatest one would be the avoidance the avoidance of an airway. As we know, uh, children, particularly infants, are more likely to have um, issues with um, with injury related to the the use of an endotracheal tube uh, endotracheal tube uh, airway edema post-extubation stride or risk for uh, scarring and stenosis. So the ability to avoid that invasive tube would certainly be an advantage if you could get away with it. Um, placing that tube also, uh, as we know, puts, uh, puts a patient at risk for um, exposure to pathogens, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and uh, that loss of that airway uh, protection uh, that innate airway protection certainly sets uh, a child up for uh, secondary infection. So again, avoiding avoiding that tube would be would be helpful indirectly. Um, 
Our experience has also been that while children may require sedation for non-invasive ventilation, um, they're uh, more likely to require less sedation or no sedation, and the uh, spontaneous breathing effort is going to allow them to help uh, maintain, uh, help decrease their risk for atelectasis and uh, decreased uh, uh, FRC. So do you think we really can get rid of our endotracheal tubes? Well, uh, my, my title was uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I realized after I put it out there that I was dating myself significantly um, with references to uh, A-tracks and Betamaxes. I, I hope that some of our uh, younger intensivists can, can Google those uh, terms to, to find out some of those old things. But uh, I, obviously we can't, we, we can't use non-invasive ventilation in all, um, in all patients with respiratory failure, but... I certainly uh, believe, and uh, increasingly uh, data studies such as these are, are demonstrating there, there may be a, a subset of patients who have moderate respiratory insufficiency that have the potential to progress to respiratory failure that, that uh, perhaps we can head off from the need for uh, endotracheal intubation. And uh, this study is, is uh, really the first randomized trial that, that sort of suggests uh, a potential benefit for a subcategory of, of uh, children. Can you comment on how you select patients for a trial of non-invasive ventilation, and in particular, when would you not use non-invasive ventilation? Sure. I, I think that I think there definitely is still a an art to the um, to that determination. And in, in this study, the um, the authors tried to, to categorize a very a a, a very broad set of patients with, uh, with respiratory insufficiency, that is, they, uh, they had um, decreased PF ratios, they had hypercarbia, they had increased oxygen requirement, and they showed distress, but they were not, um, uh, certainly not moribund, they were not apneic. So, um, and that, that's really consistent with the type of patients in my personal practice in our, in our ICU that we... Um, that we try to select the patient that is in significant respiratory distress that that is at potential for uh, worsening, but uh, but who is who is uh, spontaneously breathing with um, reasonable effort and uh, has a disease process that has the potential to um, to resolve over a a reasonable amount of time. Um, uh, certainly, patients that I would not consider non-invasive ventilation are on are the, the patient with significantly altered mental status, in whom I would be concerned that the, the patient wouldn't uh, be able to adequately protect their airway, uh, and that was also an exclusion in, in this study. Uh, the patient that we that is already that is profound oxygen requirement or uh, pressure needs, we would be uh, more more quick. To, uh, to intubate rather than, than giving a trial of non-invasive ventilation as well. Uh, and in general, and I can speak to that a little bit later on as well, the, 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 the key is that, that assessment of response. We are relatively quick to use non-invasive, a trial of non-invasive ventilation for our, for our children, um, but we're rapidly assessing whether they're improving or deteriorating with the use of non-invasive ventilation because certainly we want to avoid um, uh, getting lulled into a false sense of security that uh, that they might be slightly improving, only to have them have a rapid deterioration later. 
You talked earlier about the advantages of non-invasive ventilation, uh, avoiding endotracheal intubation and so forth. What are the disadvantages of non-invasive ventilation? Um, there's, I guess, several, several potential disadvantages. I think that I mentioned the need for sedation. I think that is very variable. We um, I've certainly had variable experience with how much sedation a child needs to tolerate that. Um, the, uh, and we do sometimes have the, the patient on the, uh, the BiPAP mask who requires very large amounts of sedation. Um, so that could potentially be a disadvantage. There are some uh, problems we've noted in our own experience and in our own published experience with um, facial uh, breakdown, skin breakdown, and so it requires real attentiveness to, uh, to protecting particularly the nasal bridge from the, the face mask. Um, we have, we as, as did the authors in this study, we have been, uh, we've tended to use the full face mask now rather than the smaller nasal mask, and so you do, um, you are covering, covering both the nose and the face, and there's the potential for uh, emesis and, and problems there, although that's, that's rare. So um, I, I think in general, up front with that, with that use of the mask, it requires a, a heavy upfront commitment from the, the uh, uh, intensivist and from the uh, respiratory care practitioner. Um, several studies have shown uh, just a, a high amount of, uh, of face time needed in assessing that patient's initial response, getting the child settled on the mask, um, getting the right pressures, getting them to tolerate that, sedating that uh, up front. So there is a, there's a real upfront commitment that you it might even be less than the, the patient that you just uh, go ahead and intubate and you're, you're able to sedate them and get their settings quickly. Um, but I believe that the, the payoff can be significant if you uh, put that effort into some of, these, some of these patients with respiratory insufficiency to, to go with the non-invasive ventilation versus immediately intubating. Yeah, I think the, the comments you made about um, having the, particularly the toddler age group who is sometimes very difficult to get to cooperate for anything, <laughs> let alone a tight-fitting mask. <laughs> How do you uh, approach those kids? Well, it's uh, yes, you mean the, the toddlers, you know, tough enough in the in the best of, of settings, and certainly certainly not one that you can talk down. The older child, we often are able to um, to to talk them down on that, and and we we find that uh, um, my sense is that. Some of these patients who are, who are getting benefit from non-invasive ventilation appear to tolerate it better. They, they, sense, they sense improvement. In the toddler, that's, that's, I doubt that happens too much. Right. Uh, so we are, uh, we are dependent on adding sedation in. With that sedation comes, again, that, that heightened uh, need for monitoring and uh, frequent assessment. Uh, in, our, in our unit, we use... Um, uh, we, we use a lot of ketamine infusions um, in that setting to monitor children. Sometimes we use uh, benzodiazepines, Versed in particular, um, but uh, we just, again, have to monitor very closely. How about using non-invasive ventilation after extubation to sort of ride the child through perhaps a short-term but difficult hump? Yes, that's, uh, that's a, it's a very good point, and I think... Uh, in um, in both our personal experience and in reviewing some of the other studies, that is a um, that's a subset of patients where we've found it particularly helpful. 
in our own um, in our own published experience way back in 1995. We, we found it beneficial for a significant proportion of patients who are developing respiratory distress um, in that, that was in part related to upper airway uh, obstruction uh, to, to help, help get through that first 12, 12 to 24 hours. Um, and uh, several of the studies have, have found that same, uh, uh, that same benefit in the patient who particularly may have some neuromuscular weakness from having been on the from from critical illness myopathy superimposed with uh, um, steroid effects effects of aminoglycosides other other medications I think I think that that setting of patients in particular uh, can get some some benefit from the uh, the inspiratory pressures provided to help overcome some of that weakness and some of that uh, um, upper airway. Um, edema and weakness. I think your earlier point about frequent reassessment and a lot of FaceTime uh, applies in this setting, too, because uh, at least in some of the adult literature, there's a suggestion that um, delaying reintubation makes the, by using non-invasive ventilation, actually makes the patient's outcome worse. Ye- yes, that, uh, I think that is a, a key point and one that I would really uh, Drive home, and, and one that I try to really encourage with our with our staff and in, in teaching our residents and fellows is is to um, to avoid that that false sense of security that once you go on BiPAP, you know, you give them 12 to 24 hours. The you you referred to uh, um, the uh, the literature supporting that one one study did actually demonstrate increased mortality in patients receiving, uh, these were adults receiving non-invasive ventilations compared with controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they found in, in looking at those, uh, those subgroups was that the, uh, the time from respiratory failure to reintubation in the non-invasive ventilation patients was much longer. It was a median of about 12 hours until reintubation compared to control patients that were reintubated within about two and a half hours. And uh, so certainly the uh, the inference was from that may have been that 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 prolonged waiting time that that uh, desire to sort of wait it out may have may have uh, factored into uh, perhaps the the increased mortality. In Dr. Yanez's study, um, they did not see a significant difference in the in the time to reintubation. Um, in either between the control and the non-invasive ventilation groups, and those patients that did get reintubated, uh, it suggested that they were they were very uh, cognizant of of um, of a, once they entered that study of uh, of readdressing um, the the need for whether to put that tube in or not. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I, I think uh, I think we covered. Uh, uh, the, the prominent issues, I think, uh, again, just to reemphasize that frequent reassessment, that uh, av- avoiding that, uh, that false sense of security uh, with, with, with BiPAP to be constantly reassessing from the standpoint of is, my, is, is this child getting better or, or slowly getting better, um, holding their own in a, um, in a positive way, uh, or you know, is it time to put that tube in? To constantly be asking that question, um, and certainly, I would uh, to all our intensivists, intensivists, I would uh, encourage you to hang on to those endotracheal tubes. That uh, certainly they're not ready to to go away for a long time yet. 
Well, it really has been very interesting talking to you uh, today, Dr. Fortenberry. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Dr. Parker. We have been speaking today with Dr. James Fortenberry from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Eggleston in Georgia about the editorial he wrote, Eight Tracks, Betamax, Is the Endotracheal Tube Next to Go?, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2008. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Thanks again for listening. The Society's annual Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year, drawing more than 5,000 professionals from around the world. Throughout this five-day event, more than 300 educational sessions, workshops, keynote addresses, panel discussions, symposiums, and more will be offered on broad and specialized topics in critical care. The high-level programming of Congress speaks to all members of the critical care team, exploring the issues and clinical topics that affect most of their daily environment. Mark your calendar for SCCM's 38th Critical Care Congress to be held January 31st to February 4th, 2009 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. Visit www.sccm.org for further information.